Hello, welcome back to Learning from a Layman. I'm Carl, and I'm back with Matt, and we are continuing our World War II. Can it be a mini series? There's probably some amount of podcasts that we cover World War II in, in which it stops. It ceases being a mini series and just becomes a series. Yeah, I don't know. This is World War II Part Four, Part One. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. So, um, if you haven't heard World War II Part One, Two, or Three, go back and listen to those in order to prep for World War Two Part Four, Part One. Is that what we're calling this? Yeah. Okay. So this is the year 1944 beginning of the year. I don't remember where we left things. Um, uh, we had just finished 1943. <laughs> yes, yes, we had. Uh, what was happening in the war, if for those that maybe listened to our part three podcast a couple months ago and are not up on the end, I think um, things are looking up for the allies and down for the Axis powers. Yeah, so at the end of 1943, Allied forces have landed in southern Italy and are marching up the coasts. Uh, the American-led forces on the west coast and British forces on the east coast, uh, on the Adriatic coast. Uh, so that's happening down there. The German army has run into significant setbacks in the on the eastern front fighting the Soviets, and is now kind of on the defensive after having suffered some really major defeats in the summer of 1943, including the Battle of Kursk. In the Pacific, the Japanese are also on the defensive as the Americans and, and allies have started their island hopping campaign in the south and have begun a drive through the central Pacific, taking islands such as Tarawa and others in the in the Gilberts. Um, all moving towards getting closer and closer to Japan so that they can start strategic bombing as a prelude to an eventual invasion. Speaking of strategic bombing, that's been happening nonstop from England. Uh, both American and British crews, uh, Americans di executing different raids during the day, and British bombers flying at night. Are we flying from are our planes on on air bases in England? Are being I'm an American. Yes. Uh, are American yeah. planes? Okay. Yeah. This is long before the days where we have in-flight refueling or intercontinental capable bombers or anything like that. So American bombers are based mostly in England, some in North Africa, and are starting to execute different raids into Axis-held territory in Europe occasionally against targets in Germany as well. Uh, but that's 1943, and with that, we're ready for 1944. All right. All right. So we're going to do this one a little bit different. Instead of just going month to month, um, I'm going to do it a little more based on different theaters, and we'll jump back and forth between them as we go along, but I'll, I'll try to make the story of a given theater a little more coherent. So we'll start with Italy, in, uh, or, or rather the Italian front, in January of 1944.
And this starts off uh, the the big the first big event of the year is the first Battle of Monte Cassino, which starts on the 17th of January. And the situation here is, as I mentioned, the Allied armies are driving up the coast, the British on the east and the Americans on the west. And there are three major routes that lead to Rome, routes five, six, and seven. Now, January, as you may have observed, is usually in the winter. And so Route 5 in the east is pretty much frozen over and impassable at this time of year. Route 7 on the west coast has been deliberately flooded by the Germans. It runs through these marshes. They've flooded the marshes. It's impassable. And so that leaves Route 6 as the road into Rome. And Route 6 passes directly uh, you know, through the, the town of Cassino and, and significantly directly under this large hilltop, mountaintop monastery uh, the, and, at Casino. <clears throat> and, and this is an ancient monastery that's been there forever. And it's a great strategic position. Uh, well, the, the, the city of Casino is a great strategic position. It controls the route to Rome. The Germans have it pretty heavily fortified. And it's right in the Allies' way. And so on the 17th, the Allies launch an assault. This is mostly an American thing. And we we try this uh, river crossing that does not go well at all, uh, a crossing over the Rapido River. And the goal here is that we're, one, trying to get through Casino, and two, the Germans have been essentially doing a fighting retreat as they've been moving north from the south of Italy. So the Germans have all these different lines, and, and the big one that they've been working on is one called the Gustav Line. And as the Allies have been pushing the Germans back in this fighting retreat, as they've been pushing them northward from the south of Italy where they landed, they've kind of expected that the Germans will just keep going. But that wasn't the German plan. The German plan was to buy time until they could get the Gustav Line fully up and fortified. And at that point, they stopped retreating and they held. And and that wasn't what the Allies wanted to have happen. Um, so anyway, the Gustav line, Monte Cassino is, is right there in that line. And, and this is a key point. Meanwhile, a bunch of German reserves are held up north towards Rome. Uh, and the goal is not only to breach the Gustav line, but in that breach to draw a bunch of those German reserve divisions southward prior to another allied landing at the Anzio beaches, which is planned for later in the month. Wait, where uh, is this Gustav line? The Gustav line, it runs uh, basically across Italy. Um, like, it's it's south of Rome and oh, it, okay. yeah, it's it's just a defensive line that the Germans hoped to hold to keep the Allies bottled up in the south and stop them from charging northward. Now, keep in mind also, back in 1943, when the Allies invaded, the Italians promptly surrendered. The Germans said, no, we're not letting that happen. And so the Germans essentially took over the defense of Italy. And it didn't really matter what the Italians wanted to do at that point. Uh, the Germans were going to hold their occupied territory. 
Well, that first battle of Monte Cassino does not go well at all. Um, and, and nothing happens, but the Germans are committed to defending that area. And indeed on the 22nd of January, the allies make a largely unopposed landing at Anzio to the north. And the idea is that this force will be able to charge inland behind the German lines and wreak havoc and trap German forces. And it will be great. That's not what the commanding general ended up doing. He basically landed there and camped, uh, consolidating his position. Now, at some level, that's prudent, I guess. Um, the problem is that instead of pushing inward, when you camp on a beachhead in a hostile occupied territory, it gives the defenders time to also assemble their forces to contain you. And that's what they did. And Anzio quickly became surrounded, <clears throat> was subjected to repeated bombardment. And instead of being this deep penetration strike that was going to wreak havoc behind, behind the German defensive line, it ended up being a, a pocket that did tie down German defenders, but also didn't go anywhere. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. In fact, uh, the, the British, I, I think it was General Montgomery, remarked, I'd hoped that we were hurling a wildcat ashore, but all we got was a stranded whale. So, ah, a stranded of, whales. Yeah, not what you want to have on your... Uh, in your armed forces, generally. <laughs> who who was uh, in charge of that uh, that crew? That uh, at, at the time it was uh, an American general, General John P. Lucas. He was later relieved, um, and eventually the Allies did manage to break out of Anzio. Months later, like in May. Meanwhile. Uh, Things just are, are not going so great. Uh, on the 24th of January, you have the second Battle of Monte Cassino, where, again, the uh, uh, Allied force fords across a river, which they're able to cross, um, but the terrain that they're going over is very exposed. And as they start to get through this area, they come under fire from the Germans. There's not a lot of cover. They take losses. It's not great. And finally, you have this other force trying to come in, do do kind of a hook maneuver through these mountain passes. Now, the terrain is, well, mountainous, and the Germans have, have made, have really exploited the terrain. They've prepared defenses, booby traps. There's no real cover it's just the worst terrain to try to move through if you're attacking against somebody who's defending and has artillery and has the high ground. Um, and it, it just does not go well. And this offensive is pushed back by the 12th of February. When, when this goes down, the Allies note that, hey, the Germans are, are doing really well with their artillery. It's like they can see everything. And you notice that the high point in the area is the monastery at Monte Cassino, which is this very you know, old, very large, very fortified religious site. And the Allies start to become very suspicious that the Germans are in that site and using it for artillery spotting. D accounts differ. 
there are a number of reports from Allied reconnaissance flights that said, yeah, we saw German troops there. We saw German uniforms on clotheslines in courtyards. We saw this. We saw that. Uh, meanwhile, the German high commander uh, for the Italian front, uh, Kesselring, had explicitly told the Vatican that, hey, I am not going to use this abbey uh, at all as, as part of my army or, or as, as part of my defensive strategy. We might be next to it. We might be around it, but we will not be inside the abbey. And... Yeah, this isn't believed. And because the German defenses are so good and because the Allies are not making any progress, the call is made that, you know what, we're going to level that thing and any German artillery spotters in there are going to have a bad day. So on the 13th of, sorry, the 15th of February, there is a very large air raid and Monte Cassino is bombed. A lot of people inside are killed. Uh, and Unfortunately, well, there, there's no end to the unfortunately's here. Um, but from a, a military standpoint, the Abbey Monte Cassino would have made a interesting tactical fortification, but not super practical. When Monte Cassino was reduced to jagged piles of rubble, it actually made excellent cover for defending Germans. And the Germans looked at that pile of rubble and said, well, I guess it's fair game now, and actually did put defensive positions in that in those ruins, and it was even harder to dislodge them after that. So this, this was not great. No, it doesn't sound like it was very effective. No. Meanwhile, back up the Anzio beachhead, people have actually tried to, to make some maneuvers and some gains out of this, but the German defenses are by now pretty well entrenched. On 30 January, there's you have the Battle of Cisterna, where a, a couple Ranger battalions attempt to make kind of a deep strike into German-held territory. They they kick off charging out there at 1:30 in the morning. Um, but by daybreak, they have not reached their objective. This this other town. And they're caught out in the open, and apparently the Germans knew they were coming, because the way that they are caught in the open, surrounded by German tanks, uh, is it goes very, very badly. And the Rangers lose almost their entire force. About 700 Rangers are, are lost, killed, or captured there. So Italy is not going so great for the Allies. We're not losing, but we're not going anywhere either. And Before we move away from Italy, can I ask one other question? Sure. Uh, at the beginning, you said there were like three routes. Yes. Five, six, and seven. Yes. I'm assuming those are were like uh, highways. Road, what highways? Yeah. Okay. Good. Yep. I thought they these were like military routes, and they just started at five. Which no. Okay. Good. Yep. Anyway. Uh, yes, and and now. The good news is that as time goes on, the terrain does become more passable as winter turns into spring, turns into summer. But this is all costing the Allies dearly in terms of time and resources. And so Italy is not going so great by the end of February. On the Eastern Front, things are going like they always go on the Eastern Front. 
on on 27 January, the siege of Leningrad is finally lifted. The Red Army breaks through, gets into the city, starts providing relief and evacuation. The the human cost here is next to incalculable. In the overall Leningrad campaign, the casualties on both sides are ridiculous, but particularly bad on the Russian side. The Germans lost uh, well, casualties to to mean killed and wounded are about 580,000 on the German side. On the Soviet side, the casualties are about 3.4 million wow. military plus another 1 million civilians. Wow. It, it's it's the worst thing. Uh, and I mentioned the siege of Leningrad in one of the previous podcasts. That's because it started way back in 1942. The siege of Leningrad lasted 872 days. I believe it is the longest siege of anywhere ever. I'm, I'm not certain of that. Um, but I would not be surprised if it was the most costly in terms of human life. But again, that siege finally breaks <clears throat> what? on the 27th of January. Well, Sorry, go ahead. Well, so they, I mean, not quite three years that they see, um, well, more than two at least. Yeah. Uh, and for what, I mean, what, what advantage, like what, they were just trying to take the city, but at some yes. point see, doing a siege for more than two years seems somewhat counterproductive, right? You've got resources tied up in the siege. It depends on what you're trying to do. It is possible that you're trying to pin down someone else's resources, especially if it's more of their resources. So, again, I'm I'm not overly familiar with the strategy of the overall campaign, and I apologize. You're getting learned from a layman here. (laughs) Um, But the hint is kind of in the casualty numbers. Uh, The Germans lost 580K. The Soviet Union lost upwards of four million people. Yeah. Um, so. Okay. Well, I guess that does say that in some grotesque way it was effective. Yeah. This this kind of was the story of the Eastern Front. Um, the Germans would do a thing inflicting horrific casualties on the Russians who would absorb it because that was the Russian modus operandi take casualties and keep going um so anyway right um meanwhile elsewhere on the eastern front on the 24th january the battle of Korsun kicks off this is the soviets have this uh this doctrine of deep strategic penetration strikes where they punch through your lines and they charge as far through your line as they can get uh, hoping to hoping to get back into the strategic areas, the the field command posts, everything else, into into the strategic rear, start hitting your resources and everything behind the lines. And they do this, and it ends up encircling two German army groups of multiple divisions. That is extremely bad for the Germans. Uh, most of them managed to escape, about two-thirds of them managed to escape uh, through r- corridors in this encirclement. But when they're retreating, they can't take any of their gear with them. And so two very large German combat formations, large as in on the order of hundreds of thousands of people each, 
lose most of their heavy equipment in in this battle, uh, which wraps up in February. On the 2nd, the Russians attack the Narva bridgehead in Estonia. This is a little bit of a strange one. Uh, The local Estonians, actually, many of them volunteer to join in with the German defenders. And the reason is because they are not wild about being reconquered by the Soviet Union. They didn't really want to be Soviet in the first place. And now the Soviets are back. Uh, The Narva Bridgehead is a little bit of a... It's it's one time where the Soviet doctrine of continue taking casualties and moving forward doesn't quite work because all they do is take casualties and not move forward. So the Germans and the Estonians actually hold the the Red Army until later. The, the campaign enters its second phase on July 26th when they finally retreat from that area to meet the next Red Army assault, which we will get to later. Um, let's let's that that's kind of the Eastern Front through February. Let's let's go over to. Uh, Sorry, real quick though, who's who's in charge of the uh, the Red Army at, at the moment? Oh, I don't know the Stalin essentially. Well, right from the top. But, yeah. Um, they, I I don't know the names of their okay. commanders. I, I know the overall marshal of the Red Army was Georgi Zhukov, who was a hero of the Soviet Union until he became politically undesirable and Khrushchev removed him, which is generally what happens to capable Soviet leaders over there. They get shot. Well, Zhukov was at least, um, he was just retired, like removed from the the public picture. I I don't even think he was gulagged. I think he was basically just forced to not hold authority anymore. All right. Just, just go go have your villa and, and stay out. Anyway, okay. stay tuned for our next podcast on, uh, <laughs> on, on Soviet political intrigue, which will be an even larger. <laughs> I mean, that one can fill up more volumes. Anyway, sorry. Yeah. Right. Tangent. Yes. All right. Let's go back to the rest of Europe. So we've covered the Eastern Front. We've covered Italy through uh about the end of february um the western front is really mostly air war at this point the us and the uk are are launching air raids from from england into german held territory i mentioned last time uh, we talked about the schweinfurt raid and some of the other issues with both German, I'm sorry, both uh, daylight and night raids on on Germany. Night raids were generally not very accurate. Plus, the Germans had figured out how to home in on electronic signals from the British bombers. The daylight raids were more precise, as much as you could be with the technology of the time, but the Germans could see you, and so that became difficult. In January... Jimmy Doolittle, Colonel James Doolittle, by now a general who led the Doolittle raid way back uh, earlier in the war in 1942, he becomes the commander of the American 8th Air Force in England. And basically, he has control over all American air power there. 
And the doctrine up to this time had been that as you fly your bombers over on their air on on their raids, you would send fighter escorts with them, and the fighters would stay with the bombers until they ran out of fuel. And when they ran out of fuel, they would turn for home, and they would be relieved for the return flight. More escorts would show up, and the escorts would stay with the bombers the entire time. They were, you know, escorting. Well, General Doolittle looked at this. And, and decided that that's not what he wanted to do. The anecdote is that he was um, he, he was at an airfield and there was a big banner hung up for this fighter group, and the banner read, "We bring the bombers back." And General Doolittle looked at that and said, "I don't want you guys to do that anymore. I want you to focus on hunting down and killing the Luftwaffe wherever they are." And so he changed the doctrine. Instead of escorting the bombers by staying right next to them. The fighters were to fan out in front of the bombers and do fighter sweeps. And then after the raid on the return flight, instead of sticking next to the bombers, they were supposed to dive off and attack targets of opportunity all over occupied Europe, wherever they could find it, particularly focusing on Luftwaffe airfields. And so rather than having your escorting fighters hugging the bombers there and back, they would be kind of around the bombers hunting for intercepting fighters, and then once you hit your target, they were off strafing airfields and doing whatever else they could do. The bomber crews were understandably not happy with this change until they realized that it was actually working really, really well. And the Luftwaffe took major losses as a result of this shift in doctrine. The other thing that contributed to Allied success in the air was the arrival of longer-range fighters. Uh, we, we got some P-38 twin-engine fighters, P-38 Lightnings. Um, these were used heavily in the Pacific, specifically because of their long range. More than that, though, the new P-51 Mustangs started to come online, and this was one of the best fighters that we fielded during the war. It had a very, very long range, and it was very, very maneuverable, and it could take down anything that the Germans could throw at it at the time. And with the arrival of the Mustangs and their ability to escort bombers all the way through a raid and back, and not just that, but to range freely ahead of them all the way there and back, that really was a major shift in in Germany's well, it had a major impact on Germany's ability to defend against Allied air raids. So that change starts in, in January-ish. Germany, at the same time, starts their own bombing campaign against England, targeting London. It's called Operation Steinbach and is known as the Baby Blitz. And our faithful listeners will remember a while ago when I said Germany really didn't invest heavily in strategic bombers. Well, and they didn't. They had medium bombers, uh, mostly, and then a very limited number of, of heavier bombers with, capable of carrying larger payloads. They tried to use these as much as they could. Uh, Operation Steinbach lasted for a couple months through about uh, May or something. It was not super effective, and the Luftwaffe lost about 330 aircraft. They did do some damage around London and, and southern England, but by the the late spring, early summer, Operation Steinbach was called off, and the Germans moved towards using the unguided, I'm sorry, the uncrewed 
V1 and V2 weapons, the essentially cruise missiles and ballistic missiles after that. So, so that's, wait, that go Operation ahead. Stein, Steinbach? Is that yes. The, that was Operation. just their heavy bombers or that was all their bombers? That was all their bombers because it was all their heavy bombers, all like eight of them. They didn't have very many. They had more than eight, but not very many. Right. Uh, but it was chiefly carried out by medium bombers. They just didn't have large strategic bombing forces like the United States and England had. Right. For reference, uh, you know, they lost something like 30% of their bomber force during Operation Steinbach. Um the U.S. and England would lose large percentages, well, not large, would lose single-digit percentages of their bombers on each raid, but they were replaced every time because of the industrial output of the U.S. and Canada, uh, as well as England, and Germany just could not keep up with those replacements. And this comes into play a little bit more at the end of February, where the the allies launch uh, operation argument or uh, as it was known big week and this was a it was six days of straight bombing raids that was specifically targeting the german aircraft manufacturing one of the things that the americans and, and british had run into was that uh, up until now, the Luftwaffe had been able to choose the time and the place where they would engage uh, American air power or, or British air power, allied air power. And, and if they didn't want to come up and fight, there wasn't much you could do about it. And that was part of why General Doolittle changed the tactics. He wanted the fighters to go out and find the Luftwaffe before they could hit the bombers. Uh, rather than just waiting for the Luftwaffe to determine the time of the engagement. At the same time, sometimes the Luftwaffe wouldn't show up to oppose the bombers, and they would just use ground-based anti-aircraft artillery or other things. And so Big Week was designed to target things that the Luftwaffe couldn't not respond to, and it went after air airfields, it went after aircraft manufacturing factories and all these other things. And it was pretty costly. We lost 350 bombers over those six days, which is a lot of bombers. Um, but we flew 3,000 sorties. Uh, at the same time, the Luftwaffe lost 350 fighters and over 100 pilots, which were not nearly as replaceable. And so this was this was doing a this really hurt the Luftwaffe's ability to respond. Some of their doctrine had had it it had been geared towards attacking these bomber formations unopposed. And the Luftwaffe would use bomber destroyers, fighters that were fitted out with these, you know, extra gun packs or twin engine heavy fighters with very large cannon. Um, all of these were effective at taking down an allied bomber, but they also made the attacking fighter slow, heavy, not maneuverable. And with the change in tactics that the allies and then particularly the Americans started employing here, these German FW-190s that were loaded up with sometimes eight heavy aircraft cannon would be used to making an unopposed attack 
on a American bomber formation, and and suddenly they found themselves getting jumped by P-51 Mustangs miles away from where the bombers were. And this started to go very poorly as as the Luftwaffe realized that these heavy bomber-destroying fighters aren't necessarily viable the same way anymore. So that's kind of the air war in Europe at the time, uh, and that, that'll take us through the end of February. Uh, one other note, on the 8th of February, something called Operation Overlord is finalized, and the Allies are, are starting to gear up for that. Um, so with that, we'll move over to the Pacific. And, sorry, I was question? Just in the, uh, well, not so much a question as a comment. I just came back from vacation in Hawaii. Lucky you. So, yes, quite. And I was at Pearl Harbor. Uh, so got to, uh, I, we did that in podcast uh, one or two. That anyway, would have been one. Yes. Yeah, one, one. That's the one. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, but um, uh, I also watched the movie Pearl Harbor and which Moana. has zero relevance to World. Well, War II. I was going to say Moana and the movie Pearl Harbor about the same historical accuracy. So neat. All right, with that, going uh, yes. back to the Pacific. Pacific. <laughs> so, uh, the American island hopping campaign is going great in the south. In the central Pacific, it's a little bit more direct. Not so much island hopping as much as bludgeoning all of the islands into submission. We talked about Tarawa last time, and that was a pretty bloody assault. Well, the Americans and the Marines and the Navy learned quite a bit from that one, and so and they applied those lessons learned and subsequent assaults and landings often went much better and so january 31st operation flintlock is another in in the gilbert and marshall islands campaign and this is an attack on kwajalein and the surrounding islands in the pacific and this goes much better Um, marine casualties are minimal in fact uh, on kwajalein the single highest casualty event is when uh, a marine group chucks a satchel charge into a Japanese bunker, as you do to Japanese bunkers. What they didn't realize was the bunker was actually uh, a storage facility for torpedo warheads. And so the whole thing went high order. Uh, That's explosive speak for it exploded. And 20 Marines were lost in that one um, unexpectedly. Um, nonetheless, Kwajalein and its surrounding islands are, are pretty much pacified, that's the wrong word, conquered, occupied, uh, with the Japanese cleared out by the 7th of February. Um, shortly afterward, Operation Catchpole uh, is going on on the 17th of February, and I might get the pronunciation of these islands wrong, so please forgive me, but this is marine landings on any we talk and the japanese knew that this was coming they tried to oppose the landings on the beach um, and and they knew that this was going to be bad because any we talk was going to it was an ideal position for an air base for future american campaigning in the marianas islands so the japanese really wanted to to defend this as much as they could, uh, but 
because of the lessons learned because of heavy naval gunfire support and other things um the marines landed the marines captured the island by the 21st and and the entire atoll by the 23rd um so in in tarawa the americans lost about 2500 marines killed and another over 2000 wounded um on 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 these in, in the marshall campaign the total losses were about 611 killed and another over 2000 wounded um japanese losses in contrast were about 11000 and and only 350 captured as, as pow's um, but these two campaigns here, or, or the, these two operations, really pushed the Japanese back out of the Gilberts and the Marshalls. And at this point, they were confined to what they had termed as their absolute national defense zone. So all of their outlying Pacific territories had pretty much been captured or reoccupied. Um, it continues in February. Operation Brewer is down in the south pacific in the admiralty islands uh, and this is part of an overall larger operation called cartwheel this is that island hopping um, the big focus is the major japanese base down at rabal and operation cartwheel was designed not to conquer rabal but to isolate it to cut it off from every avenue of support and the admiralty islands were kind of the last strong point on the final supply routes into Rabal. And when the Admiralties were captured uh, during Brewer, that was that was pretty much it for Rabal. Rabal essentially became, um, well, a- almost a, a de facto prison. The Japanese couldn't get out. They couldn't get troops or supplies in. It was just kind of there. And that was the whole point of this island hopping. Rather than attacking this giant Japanese fortress, you essentially sieged it by taking all of the islands around it, and then you moved on, and and that was it. Uh, interesting note on Operation Brewer: American reconnaissance flights had kind of had indicated that the Admiralties may have been completely evacuated, and so the command thought that this would be an unopposed landing and and very easy, and they were very wrong. Uh, it was very much an opposed landing. The Marines still took the island, uh, but it did not go uh, nearly as smoothly as had been hoped. So that takes us through the end of February in the Pacific. Um, let's let's go back to Italy for March, if we could. Just March? Yeah. This isn't part... Well, this... This might be 1944, part one of eight. I don't know. <laughs> but we'll uh, we'll keep moving along here. Right. The objective is to get through June. All right. All right. So we've had two battles at Monte Cassino at this point. On the 15th of March, you have the third battle of Monte Cassino. This is after the forces in the area kind of sat there for three weeks waiting for some clear weather. They wanted three entire days of clear weather. And when that came, they they launched a massive bombing raid they launched a blanketing artillery barrage that would kind of creep along just in front of the advancing allied troops. And the idea was that 
this was going to be it. This was going to be the charge. They managed to capture a few of the points, but then the Germans counterattacked and recaptured those points. It was eventually too exhaustive, and, and basically the Germans held out. The whole thing was called off about a week later on the 23rd. Um, and that was that. Finally, way later, uh, well, at that point, the Allies is, decided that they were going to do some other stuff. And to get ready for the fourth battle of Monte Cassino, they embarked on a pretty massive military deception campaign. You had all these British forces making pretty good progress on the eastern side of Italy. And a number of divisions of those forces were moved from the east side over over the spine of Italy, over the mountain range, over to the west side to help out. At the same time, the Allies started putting out spurious radio traffic, talking about an amphibious landing that was going to happen to the north of Rome. And in fact, they sent an entire division off to go practice amphibious landings so that the Germans could watch and go, huh, they're probably going to do an amphibious landing. Um, those units that came from the eastern side of Italy, from the Adriatic side, um, they were armored units and they left behind dummy armored tanks to be observed by the Germans so that the Germans could look at them and go, yep, all those British tanks are still there. They have not gone over to the west. But they had. And months later, on, on the 11th of May, the Fourth Battle of Monte Cassino started. And because of the military deceptions, Kesselring thought that he was facing down six Allied divisions. And he had four divisions, so he was already outnumbered. But with the advantages of defense, you can hold against that. He'd already held against that three times. He was actually facing 13 divisions. Uh, which he did not realize. And the fourth battle finally broke that line. Meanwhile, back at Anzio, the Allies have finally started moving out of there. And they are behind the the, the front where, where the Allies are at Monte Cassino. And as the fourth battle of Monte Cassino starts to turn in the Allies' favor... Uh, the German 10th Army Divisions pull back to their next defensive line. Uh, this will be a theme for the rest of Italy. Um, but unfortunately, the plan here was that the Allied armies at Anzio, uh, down on the coast, would charge northeast uh, across country and get behind the German retreat, trapping the German 10th Army and all of those divisions and finally crushing German resistance in Italy. As they're getting ready to do this, General Mark Clark, in one of the most controversial orders in American military history, instead orders the Anzio force to not charge to the northeast and cut off the German retreat, but instead charge to the northwest and be the first guys into Rome. And so they do. And on June 4th, the Allies capture Rome, and General Clark gives a press conference, and it's great. And the German 10th Army slips right on by back to the next defensive line. Um, this was not great. Uh, 
the German 10th Army remnants linked up with the German 14th Army at the Gothic Line and continued to be a pain in the Allies' neck for the remainder of the war. Um, Did you do that just for optics? The speculations are are rampant. Um, a lot of people thought that that was the case. Uh, a, a press observer is said to have remarked that if Clark had done this working for Hitler, Hitler would have had him shot. Um, but yeah, that that regardless, that is what happened. The commander of the Anzio forces was absolutely dumbfounded when he received the order. Because he was gearing up to trap the Germans like we had been planning and instead was told, you know, go get Rome. And Rome, admittedly, was a strategic uh, or or rather a. I guess it was a strategically symbolic point that that the Allies wanted to take. Uh, Was it important to take Rome? Yes. Did it have to be right then? Well, that will be debated forever by history. Um, my own opinion is irrelevant, but my own opinion is also that, yeah, that was a major blunder. So anyway, that is what happened. As an interesting side note, uh, Monte Cassino, when it was leveled, um, did not contain um, centuries upon centuries worth of religious writings and texts and art. That had actually been not stolen for once by the Germans. Uh, In fact, two German officers, realizing what was going to happen here uh, in late 1943, coordinated directly with the Vatican to take everything worthwhile and historically significant out of the Abbey at Monte Cassino and move it directly to the Vatican. Um, And so when the Abbey was eventually flattened by the Allies, all of those artifacts had already been evacuated and, and are, well, we still have them today. So. But there's no confirmation <clears throat> that when we, that we, the ally powers flattened it, there actually were Germans in it at the time. Uh, the official U.S. military history department um, stance on this has changed over the decades. Uh, at first it was, yeah, there were totally Germans there. And then it was, there was a company of German military police there. And then I think in the late 60s, it became there is no evidence there were Germans there. So, okay, so it's a bit. It um, is fuzzy. (laughs) Maybe there were Germans there at some points. Maybe they were told by a furious Kessel ring, get out of here, you idiots. The allies will bomb us if they see you there. I mean, we could speculate all day. Um, Some reports from commanders on the ground were, yes, they're totally there. Some reports from commanders also on the ground were, um, and in fact, one of the American generals was quoted as saying, they've been looking so hard that they're seeing things, uh, referring to his observers. They're, they're seeing things that aren't there. Right. So anyway, so that is pretty much it for Italy. Uh, we will end our Italian campaign there on June 4th at the the capture of Rome. Um, Overall, through all four of the Monte Cassino battles and all of that campaign, allied casualties of killed and wounded were about 105,000. So this was a pretty costly campaign. 
German casualties were significant, but not nearly that high. They did a fighting retreat and they managed to conserve combat power. And they were allowed to uh, ultimately evacuate a number of combat divisions because the Allies did not close the door with those forces that had been down at Anzio. Meanwhile, on the Eastern Front, where things are even more grim, um, let's let's go into May. Uh, May actually has some good news. Um, by the 9th, the Crimean Peninsula, uh, or, or rather Sevastopol on the Crimean Peninsula, is retaken by the Soviets. And the Germans are pretty much out of the Crimean Peninsula by the completely by the 13th. And so the Red Army is making good progress, driving the Germans back out. Um, elsewhere, we'll skip a, a little bit ahead. Um, the, the way things went down on the Eastern Front is a little bit complex. It was not so simple as Russia driving the Germans back. Uh, it was more along the lines of the Soviet Union attempting to accomplish every political objective it had all at once, including retaking Soviet territories like Estonia and including taking over Finland, which they tried to do. And so in on June 9th, um, well, let's back up a little bit. The winter war between the Soviet Union and Finland was fought essentially to a stalemate. And at the end of it, the Finns agreed to give up some lands uh, and the Soviets agreed to stop attacking them. Now, the war had been massively one-sided in terms of casualty count. The Finns had sustained losses, but the Soviets had sustained a, a disproportionately larger number of, of casualties. It was ridiculous. The difference was that the Finns couldn't sustain the losses, and the Soviet doctrine was, we've got way more peasants than you have, and so you know we'll march to victory over the corpses of our dead. Uh, and, and that's what they did. Um, and so the Finns were exhausted, and they agreed to give up these lands. Well, when Germany invaded the Soviet Union uh, during Operation Barbarossa in, in 1941, the Finns were kind of keen to get in on this because they wanted their lands back. And so they promptly went on the offensive, retook the lands that they had ceded to the Soviets at the end of the Winter War, and actually took some additional land that previously had not been Finnish. Well, as the Red Army eventually slows the Germans' momentum throughout 1942 and, and really into 43 and starts pushing back against it in 1944, they start to come up against Finland again. And they're demanding these different things. The Finns say no. Um, the Finns are getting equipment supplies from the Germans, even if they're not necessarily you know, fighting for the same things that Germany is. They're more, we're, we're kind of in an, an the enemy of my enemy is my friend and the soviets have invaded yeah the soviets have invaded me no one in the world supported me when the soviets did that the germans are now attacking the soviets i'm going to help attack the soviets and i'm going to help the germans attack the soviets and the germans will help me attack the soviets and that's kind of what happened um well on the 9th the soviets finally attack finland and they push them back to kind of the the boundaries 
at the end of the Winter War. They retake the lands that Finland had ceded to them, and they're planning on driving into Helsinki. Uh, this goes kind of well for the Russians or the Soviets right up until the Battle of, I'm going to get this wrong, Tali in Hantala, uh, which is fought between 25 June and 9 July. And really, this is the the German, the Finnish and the Soviet forces coming together and just grinding each other down. Uh, the Finns are supported by small groups of Germans, and they do have some German weapons, including the new Panzerfaust anti-tank missile. Um, think kind of a very primitive javelin. Um, and it's, you know, the Soviets, again, outnumber the Finns by a lot. But thanks to a massive concentration of Finnish artillery fire, dogged defenses, and just eventual wearing down, they managed to hold. And towards the end of July, or towards the early part of July, the Soviet forces are told, the Soviet high command kind of realizes that, you know what, maybe Finland isn't worth it. Not only that, but the real prize is Berlin let's withdraw these divisions that are making no progress up in Finland, get them down south and have them charge in towards Germany. Now, leading up to all of this, uh, the the Finnish president, um, Raiti, has, has been working with the Germans to provide supplies. And one of the conditions for the Germans to provide military support to the Finns is that the Finns absolutely will not make peace with the Soviets, because if they do, that's going to put a lot more pressure on the Germans. So President Reiti gives his personal guarantee to uh, the German foreign minister, Ribbentrop, uh, of the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact fame. You remember what a trustworthy dude he is. Um, But the Finnish president gives his personal guarantee to Ribbentrop that verily Finland will not make peace with the Soviet Union as long as he is president. Um, And so, as the Soviet troops withdraw and Finland is exhausted and near-breaking again and realizes that they cannot withstand another Soviet assault, Ribbentrop resigns his position on the 28th of July and Finland immediately makes peace with the Soviet Union. Um, So, Right, he kind of honored his promise to Ribbentrop, but also he managed to get Finland out of a war that they were not going to be able to win if the Soviets came back. Uh, and, and so that's kind of it for the Eastern Front. Um, we'll jump briefly back to Estonia. The, this whole campaign over in Estonia had been not just to retake Estonia for the Soviet Union, but also to use Estonia as a jumping-off point to take more of Finland, uh, as as you do when you're the Soviet Union. So the the Battle of the Narva Bridgehead kind of puts, uh, you know, throws that plan completely off because the the defenses there hold until July. At that point. The Germans and Estonians retreat to another defensive line and fight another defensive battle, which they win defensively. Uh, There are about 22,000 
German and Estonian soldiers versus about 137,000 Russians. And at a given time, now the casualties here on the German-Estonian side are about 10,000 for the Germans and 170,000 for the Soviets. And you wonder, how can they have more casualties than they have people? Well, the Soviets, in true Soviet doctrine, were just continually re- reinforcing their their lines and their losses. You know, a group gets cut down by Estonian-German gunfire. You bring another group of reserves into the front to fill the gap. And so you had horrific casualties on the Soviet side against these outnumbered Estonians and Germans. Um, but once again, Soviet momentum is blunted here, and they can't make through make it through. Uh, make, yeah, their 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 objective is thwarted. Again, though, the priority becomes pushing into Germany, and so Estonia is kind of sort of spared for a bit not not for for much longer but we'll get to that later it seems insane that russia could just continually throw tens of thousands hundreds of thousands of people and just i mean the military has to have been just massive yeah it was um what we're seeing now, I'm going to dive into current events in the Ukraine, is the is Russia essentially doing the same thing, failing to realize that they don't have the inexhaustible manpower reserves that they used to. Um, right. And I, yeah. Well, yeah, and and they are now just going into this war of attrition against the Ukrainians, where you have. Um, you know, significantly outgunned Ukrainian forces managing to hold against numerically superior Russians who are counting on numbers. And we'll, we'll see how that goes in, in a modern battlefield where you're not dealing with Panzerfausts and, and things anymore. You're not dealing with javelins and drones and everything else. Right. Whatever. Different um, calculus. Yeah. Sorry. All right, a little no, bit we're of good. current commentary. To, uh, yeah, so let's yeah let's let's move over to the Western Front in the rest of Europe. Can we do it in less than ten minutes? No. <laughs> okay, so we just make this a long podcast. I'm sorry. World War II, it turns out, is big. Ah, that's that's what they said when they named it. Yep. All right, but we will get through this because there's really only a couple <clears throat> major events. Okay, so the first one is on the 18th of March. This is Operation Marguerite. Hungary is looking like it might not be so loyal to the Axis cause anymore, and this is of significant concern to the Germans. They really don't want Hungary switching sides mid-war, because we hate it when that happens. So, the regent of Hungary is invited to come over to Austria to meet der Fuhrer, and he's given a, a message that der Fuhrer needs to urgently speak to him right now in in mid-March on about the 15th. Uh, Hitler and, and the region, uh, Horthy, talk for a couple days. And Horthy finally goes back to Hungary where he is greeted at the train station by German troops who, in the time that Hitler was negotiating with him, 
have moved into Hungary and completely occupied it. Horthy is told that Germ or that Hungary will be allowed to remain a sovereign state as long as you do exactly what we tell you. And so he does. And that is it. Hungary remains on the Axis side for now. It is occupied completely by the Germans without firing a single shot. Uh, but the Hungarian military is now under the control of the Germans. Initially, the Germans just want to prevent the Hungarian military from being used against them. But they end up shifting different Hungarian units to help counter the Soviets, which goes about as well as you think it does, meaning horrible losses and it, it's a bad time. Um, but that's that's March, where, where Hungary now comes under overt German occupation. Most of April is spent on the Western Front doing rehearsals for D-Day. A lot of preparation, a lot of military deception going on. Uh, the Allies launch Operation Fortitude North and Fortitude South, which are different things designed to make the Germans th think that the invasion is going to be in Norway, that's Fortitude North, or in Calais, and that's Fortitude South. Legitimate radio messages are routed via landline to Kent, where, um, where the Allies have installed General Patton uh, in a dummy command position, basically trying to get the Germans to believe that the bulk of the Allied forces are concentrating in Kent, getting ready for an amphibious landing in Calais. This works really well. In fact, after D-Day launches, they keep Patton in Kent for a while longer just to convince the Germans that the landings in Normandy aren't the real thing. There's another landing coming in Calais. And so this does a pretty good job of throwing off the German expectation of where an imminent invasion is going to happen. Um, and it does happen. And on the 5th of June, Operation Overlord starts with paratroopers dropped uh, into France. This does not go particularly well for a number of reasons. A lot of paratroopers are scattered, dropped in the wrong spots. Casualties are high, but they do manage to capture some objectives and tie down a, a number of German forces away from the beaches. On the morning of June 6th, the actual D-Day landings start uh, on the Normandy beaches. There are five different beaches set aside for um, for different allied units to, to attack. Uh, Utah Beach is given to a number of American divisions and the landings actually go pretty well there. Omaha Beach does not go so great at first. There are 2,000 plus casualties. And in fact, uh, this is another one that's handed over to a pair of U.S. infantry divisions. Uh, the losses are so bad and the fire is so intense that at 8.30, landings are called off by the beach, uh, uh, the beach master, I believe was the title. Um, and a pair of destroyers are brought up to provide some naval gunfire support to suppress the defenders and, uh, until landings can resume. Right here... The, the entire beachhead had been saturation bombed by the Allies immediately prior to the landings. But at Omaha, that wasn't necessarily, well, they didn't clear all of, all of the defenses that they had hoped to. 
not only that, but they were facing an entire German division there rather than a regiment that they expected. Um, additionally, all of these, all of the landings were supported by these specially converted amphibious tanks. Um, they were essentially tanks with a giant floaty around them so that they could, uh, you know, float their way onto shore and provide some armor support. Well, the tanks at Omaha Beach were dropped about five kilometers from shore, and most of them sank in heavy seas before they could get ashore. In fact, I think of the 30-plus, only uh, 27 sank. So not a lot of armor support made it on shore at Omaha. Didn't they test this before they did it? Well, yes, but in testing in calm seas and operating in heavy seas are are different now these tanks did go better uh on on some of the other beaches um gold beach went to the british and that actually went pretty well juno beach was a little bit rough the armor was late showing up and most of the bombardment didn't hit the defenses there were almost a thousand canadian casualties at juno beach Sword Beach was another British one. They had about a thousand casualties as well. It was a little bit complicated because due to the winds, the tide came in faster than they'd hoped. Um, But by the end of the day, the Allies had a beachhead, a large beachhead, five large beachheads at Normandy. And as we will learn in 1944, part two, that was the start of the Allied invasion of Europe from the West. All right, so with that, let's move down to uh, to India and China and just briefly talk about what's been going on over there. In March, the Japanese invade India. They're, they're trying to, towards Imphal, they're, they're trying to make some gains down there. This doesn't really work, and, and by the end of May, the Japanese have been driven back out of India, and, and that's pretty much the end of Japanese offensive action down there. Uh, in April, they launch a significantly larger operation in China called Operation Ichigo. And the goal here is to link railways in Japanese-held northern China in the Beijing area to Japanese-held railways in southern China. The idea being that if they can establish a railway link between northern and southern China, they can move supplies up and down there instead of having them to move them by ship. And the reason that that's so beneficial is because their ships keep getting sunk by American submarines. And so they they launched this huge offensive southward, and, and it's actually successful in terms of, well, going southward. The other objective that they have here is they notice that the Americans keep building airfields in China and they notice that China is close enough to Japan, especially with these fancy new B-29 bombers that the Americans keep sending over here. And so their other objective is to take these areas where the Americans are putting in airfields. They're actually sort of successful in this, and the Americans do have to evacuate and move their airfields further inland. But ultimately, the, the Japanese kind of overextend themselves through this and the the, this is a large force this is about a half a million men that execute this operation um the ultimate 
aftermath is that uh, eventually, you know, the the Japanese forces can withdraw. But the the real impact has to do with the the Chinese government at the t- time, led by Chiang Kai-shek. Um, his he loses so much credibility and face uh, because of this operation as as the Japanese just charge down there and as the, the Chinese nationalist forces are not only not being able to deal with the Japanese very well, but also the Chinese communists are running around and it just looks bad. And a lot of Chinese villagers are openly fighting against the government forces, even supporting the Japanese. The commander of American forces in China uh, is uh, General Stilwell, and he's Chiang Kai-shek's chief of staff. He's he's very capable and has been doing great things, but he's butted heads with Chiang Kai-shek. And one of the things that he's wanted was to have all of the military forces in China put under his control because he, well, he's a good general and he knows what he's doing and he sees the blunders that keep happening all around him. And so when Operation Ichigo kicks off, Stilwell writes to Roosevelt asking if Roosevelt will please finally tell Chiang Kai-shek that I need to be in charge of all of these armies if we're going to defeat the Japanese here. Um, And so Roosevelt writes the letter, says, Dear Chiang, please, please, finally, Put General Stilwell in charge. Chiang Kai-shek does not respond to this well and instead writes back to Roosevelt saying, remove Stilwell immediately and give me another officer. And that's what Roosevelt does. And so General Stilwell is replaced. Um, the, The Chinese nationalists continue to lose face. Ultimately, the political consequences are pretty bad even if the tactical successes of the Japanese didn't really end up mattering in the war, the American bomber raids from China were still able to happen. Not only that, but the island bases that we were starting to take in the Pacific provided better bomber bases. And you know, ultimately, Operation Ichigo cost the Japanese a lot of resources for not a lot of gain. But it also really undermined... Chiang Kai-shek and his nationalist forces. And so with that, we'll wrap this up by addressing some of the things that go on in the Pacific from March to June. And there's a couple couple battles that, that happen here. The Japanese are pushed uh, further in into New Guinea. They're driven from the east uh, and, and they're concentrated now uh, in western New Guinea. Um, through a a series of amphibious landings in April. But the big one comes in June uh, in in the Battle of the Philippine Sea. Uh, This kind of starts on June 12th, where the U.S. Navy launches the first carrier-based strikes on the Marianas Islands. And the Marines then land on Saipan on the 15th. Uh, They take the island, that's fine. The Japanese are going to oppose this, though, and they send out a very large task force with um, a number of fleet carriers, battleships, and cruisers um, to engage this U.S. Navy force. By this time, 
the U.S. Navy has really built itself back up. And the Navy task force, the, the U.S. task force, has seven fleet carriers, eight light carriers, a number of battleships, cruisers, and destroyers, and so forth. Um, by contrast, the Japanese have three fleet carriers and six light carriers. And that said, the Japanese actually find the Americans first and launch the first attacks. And they, on, on the morning of 19 June, uh, very early in the morning, they launch three waves of carrier-based and, and land-based attacks against the American task force. These airwaves are all intercepted by U.S. Navy fighters and absolutely mauled. And on the first day, the Japanese score one bomb hit on the deck of the battleship South Dakota, which does not do a lot of damage. In return, they lose about 350 planes for about 23 American fighters shot down. Uh, it is so bad that uh, an American fighter pilot is observed to remark that it seems like a turkey shoot back home. And the, the battle is thereafter referred to as the Great Marianas Turkey Shoot. Um, it is the, just about the most one-sided aerial engagement in history. So that's the first day, um, kind of. The other major action on the first day is two U.S. submarines have actually made contact with the Japanese task group. And shortly after the second wave is, is launching, the USS Albacore fires a spread of six torpedoes, one of which hits the fleet carrier Taiho. Uh, Japanese damage control quickly gets the fires and explosions under control, but problem is that aviation fuel, well, uh, just general fuel fumes uh, from ruptured pipes are floating all around the hangar deck. Um, the Japanese damage control parties realize this, and in an effort to kind of dissipate the fumes, they turn the internal ventilation systems on, on max. Instead of venting the fumes out, though, it just spreads the fumes throughout the rest of the ship. Uh, later in the day, a spark lights them off, and the Taiho explodes and wow. is completely lost. Um, about an hour after the Taiho is hit, the USS Cavella fires six more torpedoes, three of which hit the fleet carrier Shokaku, which goes down pretty quickly. And so at the end of the first day, the Americans have had one bomb splat onto a battleship, and the Japanese have lost two fleet carriers plus most of their aircraft. The next day... The Americans spend most of the day doing aerial reconnaissance, trying to find the Japanese. Keep in mind that the ocean is big. And this doesn't go anywhere until at about 3 p.m. Uh, a message comes back that, hey, we, we found the Japanese. They're 200 miles away. Now, that's the extreme range of the U.S. strike aircraft as it is. But not only that, by the time they find the Japanese and get there and get back, it will be dark, and carrier landings at night are not yet a thing that the Navy does. Um, keep in mind, this is 1944. You don't have the same technologies uh, that the U.S. Navy has today. Uh -huh. Nonetheless, Admiral Sprint says we're doing it, and he launches 200-plus aircraft that go out 
They actually do find the Japanese fleet. Uh, two oilers and one light carrier are sunk. 20 American attackers are shot down. And then the planes turn around and head back to their carriers. The attack goes down at sunset. And by the time the planes get back, it's night. Um, out of the returning 200-some-odd aircraft, 80 of them are lost in ditching or crashing or otherwise not making it back onto the deck. Uh, about two-thirds of those air crews are rescued over the coming days. Some of the squadrons actually coordinate to ditch together in formation so that they're easier to find. Um, the, the captain of, uh, I believe it's the USS Hornet, makes a very dangerous decision to actually turn on the carrier lights so that the returning aviators will be able to find them. That's really great if you're an American pilot or if you're a Japanese submariner. And so it, this was a huge risk. Uh, but shortly after the Hornet lit up its lights, all the rest of the American ships lit up their lights. Um, and thankfully, the returning strike aircraft were able to find the carriers. Many of them got back in, and the rest of them ditched. Um, but but that was that. That was the Battle of the Philippine Sea. Overall, the U.S. lost about 100 carrier aircraft um, and significantly fewer pilots. The Japanese lost irreplaceable pilots and a much greater number of irreplaceable aircraft, as well as three carriers. And so this was one of the, the last great blows against the Japanese Navy. There, there's a few more coming, but this one was pretty bad. And that pretty much takes us through the end of June 1944. All right. Well, uh, so tune back in for uh, some unspecified number of uh, podcasts that we still need to do to wrap up World War II. My guess is less than 10. Um, but we're getting a lot of information, so we really appreciate Matt um, uh, doing this series i think it's going to be really useful well i know it is for me um so let's see uh any final words matt we're gonna take a pick back up here soon and take us to the end of 1944 right uh yeah we'll we'll do 1944 uh part this has been part one of uh, of an unspecified number of exactly parts <laughs> so <laughs> Okay. Yeah. This awesome. I think this was World War Two Part Four Part One. Yes, World yeah. War Two Part Four Part One. So, and right. uh, it's been very instructive, and yeah, we'll be back again soon. In the meantime, go back and listen to our World War uh, Two podcasts, and if you want other history podcasts, we have those as well, and uh, obviously anything else that you that your heart desires. Uh, follow us on Spotify, uh, review us on Apple, all of those things. And we will see you guys next podcast. Bye.